if you were talking about sex worker rights, it was either because you were some sort of economic radical, you were a sex worker or a former sex worker, or you were a client. And if that wasn't the case for you, it was suspected that that was the case. It's become more acceptable for people who aren't sex workers to talk about sex worker rights in the context of human rights, and that is huge. Bad. Yeah, and I guess this is a, I just, I feel like there's just, this is an uphill battle in that I think there's still so much stigma around sex work um, uh, coming from both ends. One that like, one who goes into sex work, you know, must be ruined or broken in some way, or on the opposite end, somebody who who does sex work um, just like loves sex all the time and and is in it for those reasons. But I I loved um, at Catalyst Con where we just both were Melissa Gr Grant talking about that. But sex work is just work. Or I guess how do you two questions? How do you transcend those two sides of the stigma and also um, what would you say to somebody who feels uncomfortable around talking about sex workers, sex workers' rights, or hasn't opened up to this dialogue? Well, for the first question, I think that the key really is talking about sex work as work. We put pressure on sex work that we don't put on any other profession to either love it or to have it define you. And sex work doesn't define people any more than any other profession does. It's a job. When we talk about the fact that people come to it from all sorts of backgrounds, people in real estate, people in law enforcement, people in medicine, they also have abuse histories. They also have days that they love their work, days when they're inspired, and days when they just want to go home and take a nap. Sex workers are no different from any other worker. They have high days, they have low days, they have histories, they have pasts that may or may not have any relation whatsoever to their work. Now for the second question, I think that that is the key at the heart of a lot of this. One of the reasons so many people are uncomfortable with sex work is because they feel like they shouldn't be to support sex workers' rights. Mm. And the first thing that I would say is that it's okay to be uncomfortable with sex work and still believe that sex workers deserve to be able to report crimes against them to the police. They deserve to mm. have access to health care without being shamed, that they deserve to be able to rent without having the landlord be able to remove them simply for the basis of their sex work. Mm-hmm. And I think um, just to keep sitting with where I think it's, it's maybe uncomfortable for a lot of people. I know there's been so much talk about, human trafficking lately and that there's a conversation um, about sex work that includes conversations around human trafficking. And um, I'm wondering, would you be okay to speak a little bit to that and how you navigate that dialogue? Absolutely. Jumping back for just a moment to the question of discomfort with sex work, one of the reasons why people are so uncomfortable with sex work is in part because they're uncomfortable with the sex, but more so because they're uncomfortable with the work, with the idea of sex as a service. (laughs) There is a lot there to unpack. It's something that's in a lot of ways genuinely subversive. People receive a lot of cultural validation through sex. They receive a lot of affirmation through sex. And so the idea of sex as something that you can just go out and get, that touches big worth buttons for people. That touches Mm -hmm. big buttons around what relationships should look like, what gender dynamics should look like but it's something that's been going on for thousands of years and it's not going away it's always been with us it always will be with us Mm. and when it comes to trafficking it's something that occurs in most industries specifically service industries and any industry where there's a lot of migratory labor those cases are domestic labor restaurant industry agriculture and the sex trades, because those are industries where there is a low barrier to entry, where people come in and out on a fairly regular basis. Trafficking is not something that is unique to sex work, but when it comes to sex work, which act- to trafficking within the sex trades, which is a smaller portion of the larger trafficking issue than we've been led to believe by the media, 
it's something that is rendered harder to root out and harder to provide services for by the fact that so much of the dialogue around trafficking has conflated trafficking within the sex trades and sex work. It, it does seem to me, though, though I don't in any way minimize the what the horror that is brought by every instance of trafficking. Bringing that up as an excuse to be against all sex work seems like, I don't know, concern trolling or looking for a way to to make the whole thing problematic. Or presuming that there could not be any agency yeah, totally. in people who choose to engage in any kind of sex work. Right. If, if you are a sex worker, you must be brought into it by, by, by sinister means. Yes, there are definitely some people out there. I, I like the way that you both put that. There are people that believe that just because it's something that they find unimaginable for themselves, that it is something that no one else would ever choose. One of the things that I talked about when I was speaking at South by Southwest this past week was the fact that one of the reasons people believe those things about sex work is because of the way that the trafficking narrative has been constructed in the West. And that is, it's been broken down to push these buttons around conflating women and children, rendering them vulnerable to the threat of male sexuality, which is, of course, only redeemable when it is acting to protect. And so the familiar anger is roused by calling sex trafficking victims, you know, your mothers, your sisters, your children, by invoking these familial and protectionist terms, it conjures up this idea that women are never safe for men, that women are the same as children, that men and boys are invisible when it comes to threats that trans people are invisible, period. Mm. It plays into a lot of these very, very old fears that people have. It, it's manipulative, it's nasty, and it's very effective at getting utterly useless policy written. The, no main, the main result that we've been having is a lot of policy that actually does conflate sex work with sex trafficking, which is the goal of a certain number of people in the anti-trafficking movement, because if you can show these two things to be the same, or if you can make people treat them in the same way, if you can actually change the definition of trafficking to include sex work, which is happening in some states, then you can pretend to... And in some cases, Mm -hmm. this is referred to, when they target clients, it's referred to as end demand. But regardless of whether you're trying to end the industry or end demand, the result is the same, which is that your good clients the clients that have something to lose leave the client pool and you're left with the people that have an arrest record, that have a violent criminal history, that have nothing to fear if they're arrested, Mm -hmm. if they're shamed, if they're penalized. It makes sex Mm -hmm. workers less safe in a very measurable way. How do we, um, as people who are are on board with the core of what you're saying, um, how do do we and how do you, uh, who are at the front lines of this, navigate um, fighting against or minimizing uh, trafficking in instances where maybe it is honestly exploitative while also being bold and on the front lines of fighting for really important rights for sex workers? I'm so glad you asked that question. Now is actually an excellent time for anyone who considers themselves an ally of trafficking victims or of sex workers or both to step forward and make a difference in this. One of the best ways right now is to write to your policymakers, to your local law enforcement, to write letters to the editor whenever bills come up that involve trafficking and actually take the time to dig into them to highlight in those letters where sex work is being conflated with trafficking to talk Mm. to people about what that means for trafficking victims as well as for sex workers. What does that mean for trafficking victims? Typically what it means is that funds that are, these huge grants that are being given out to fight trafficking are instead going to local vice departments which means that officers are using that money to set up dates with escorts and to arrest them rather than to find trafficking victims, rather than to fight trafficking. It's a fundraiser. It's a police fundraiser. 
that's that's fun. Um, so these two things are conflated um, in law enforcement throughout the U.S. at the moment, and um, uh, and, and so the way the, the way to break that conflation is um, is are you saying it's just to be vocal to the powerful about the fact that we don't agree with that conflation? Is there anything else that that we can do on the ground here? Absolutely, being vocal to both the powerful and to the public, because a lot of times the lawmakers don't really know. They see, you know, something that looks good, that sounds good. They don't really feel comfortable voting against something that's anti-trafficking. So if you illuminate where the money's actually going, if you talk about these things in a public forum, that gives them the room to actually ask those questions. And that gives their other constituents the room and also the awareness to ask those questions as well. That makes a huge difference, specifically because it's something that so many people are talking about publicly. Another thing that makes a big difference is looking at where the funding is going. So many direct services organizations are being impacted by this because they're not receiving anti-trafficking funds because those funds are going to often religious organizations that aren't providing direct services or are stating that they are when, in fact, they're trying to refer people out, as is the case with Polaris and HIPS in D.C. So one thing that really makes a tremendous difference is actually donating to organizations that provide direct services to sex workers and trafficking victims. And HIPS Mm. in D.C. is an excellent one. That's HIPS, like H-I-P-S? H-I-P-S. You can find them at HIPS.org. And when you say direct services, what exactly does that look like? Direct services are services that help sex workers and trafficking victims one-on-one. Anyone who's in the sex trades, where they can come and have somebody to talk to, where they can have a bed for the night, where they can receive condoms, where they can get help, direct help that impacts them in the moment. Not an awareness campaign, not a billboard saying that, you know, Humans aren't disposable. That doesn't actually mm-hmm. help anyone. All it does is give these organizations room to pay their executive directors six-figure sums while the people that they're supposedly mm. trying to help are having services cut. Mm. I want to give a huge shout-out to harm reduction yes. <laughs> of every sort. Yes. Um, and and uh, just... When I hear people argue against harm reduction because it might encourage people to behave in bad ways, I really want to throw myself out the nearest Bad window. in air quotes. Then. Yeah. <laughs> there were huge Lucille Bluth air quotes there. <laughs> if I had vodka, I'd be spilling it. <laughs> harm reduction is like the greatest thing. I don't, and, and, and if HIPS is helping with that, then by all means, send them all your money. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. There's also the North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition, which has been doing fantastic work. They've actually, they have built a coalition with law enforcement to help reduce overdoses, to help sex workers have better access to services. They've done, Robert Childs has been doing amazing work out there. There's also the St. James Infirmary in the Bay Area that Mm. I can say from personal experience, they do amazing work. They provide testing, they provide health care for an extremely underserved population, and they do it without judgment and without requiring anything from the people that they serve other than to show up. Mm. Brad. Sabrina, you're so amazing. And um, I just, I want to move on to questions soon, but before we wrap up this discussion, I also want to just ask you, I love the phrasing that you use. You say you're a kink facilitator. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? Absolutely. One of the things that I do in my coaching practice is I help people get from point A to point B in terms of their relationships, in terms of their sexuality, in terms of how they move through the world. And so, so often people that have an interest in kink don't always have somebody to, I don't want to say show them the ropes, it's just too punny. But someone to give them one-on-one instruction. Not everybody can just go and find good pickup play in their area. Some people have discretion issues. Some people are just shy. And so having the opportunity to help individuals and couples explore their dominant side, their submissive side, to show them 
different techniques to play with safely so that they're not relying on, you know, Mr. Grand High Leather Poobah at the local dungeon, whose credentials they may not really know, to show them how to do things in a way that is safe, that is kept up to date with, you know, continuing kink education, which is very important. I recommend it to all of us. It makes such a difference. I love seeing people go from being uncertain of the side of themselves to stepping into their power or stepping into letting go of their power and just the peace that it brings them. It changes lives. To, to close the interview section, would you feel comfortable sharing a story of, um, of some experience you've had with somebody that was really stepping into their power in that way? Absolutely. I had a client some, a couple of years ago who was referred to me by a very dear friend And he was a college student. He actually, it was funny because he asked me if I had a discount for college students. And my first reaction was to think, wait a second, this isn't a movie theater. But I talked to my friend who who referred him and she said, I know you would never do this, but do this for him. And I trusted her. And so I said, I will do this for you. And so we began our arrangement and I would travel up to see him whenever I was in New York. We would schedule extended sessions and we would work on his relationship to his kinks, his submissive sexuality, and underneath it all to his body and his own sexual energy and his comfort with relating to women. He was super sweet, just adorable, attractive, the the kind of person who would be charming as soon as they figured it out. And so Mm -hmm. it was really rewarding just to watch him thrive because there was this period of time where all of the uncertainty was there, was being held onto, and then he just slowly started to let it go. And I remember Mm -hmm. our last session because he walked in and he had this big smile on his face and I noticed that he was walking differently. And so as we sat down to, at our usual restaurant that we would meet at, and I said to him, I said, something's different. Tell me what changed. And he said that he had just gotten laid at his reunion. <laughs> and he was grinning ear to ear. He said that he'd been flirting with her the whole time, and it, they finally made it happen. And a few months later, he wrote me, a note basically thanking me for being one of the people who helped bring him to where he was. He was in a new relationship. He was out to his girlfriend as somebody who had seen sex workers because she asked, you know, you you have all these wonderful sexual skills. Where did you get them? And he told her and she was very supportive. And I have to admit, Mm -hmm. I got, I got very misty reading the letter. And one of the things that made it so perfect was the fact that our last session, he had just, he had just gotten a new job. He was, you know, fresh out of college, just graduated, got his job. And so he, when, when I counted things afterward, I realized that he had actually, he wasn't giving me the, the student discount anymore. And I thought that that was a really <laughs> sweet symbolic thing to do to honor the exchange that we had had. It's so funny the way that these things happen, the way that they come together, but just just getting to watch somebody's journey like that as they step into their own power. And I've seen it with young people. I've seen it with older people. It's something that people really benefit from doing one-on-one intensive work. It's something that you can't accomplish in the same way. I mean, you, you can do it in the dating world and it takes a long time and a lot of trial and error and you acquire a lot of scars along the way. So having sort of a laboratory to play in that's, safe and fun it makes a world of difference that's awesome super awesome um anything else sabrina that you're burning to share before we move on or any else anything else you want to ask dave i'm still a little bit raw about the showing them the ropes joke (laughs) those sort of jokes are those sort of jokes are mine (laughs) stepping on my toes here sabrina (laughs) (laughs) We can have a we can we can we can have we can have abundance mentality around Fine. humor with puns. Everyone Dave. can make we terrible can. jokes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
On to your question. Yeah, it's listener questions time. Mm-hmm. Listen to her question. No, no, <laughs> no, come on. Okay, no, we don't get another theme song. Darn it. We already, well, it was, it was, let's have an abundance mentality about theme oh song. Oh, God. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> okay, here's our first question. Uh, what are your thoughts on pornography? I have found it an invaluable tool in my life, not just for pleasure, but for helping me recognize things that turn me on or that I want to try. And even more importantly, helping me realize back in my teenage years that I was attracted to men. But sometimes I find it hard to reconcile the liberating aspect of porn with the more problematic aspects. What do you feel are the liberating and or problematic aspects of pornography? I just love to hear a discussion about it. I would love to have a discussion about this. There's so much there. I want to talk about um, the differences between mainstream porn and feminist porn. And and in talking about mainstream porn, to talk about um, the differences between producers of and consumers of in the different... um, issues there go to (laughs) where shall we begin (laughs) okay i can okay um it sounds like you've got a lot there i I want to hear it uh, sure okay great well so i think what is porn what what is porn um i think so talking about the difference between mainstream porn and feminist porn i think when we when we hear porn obviously the first thing we think of is mainstream. That's the most prevalent. Okay. I think there's a lot that's gross and disgusting and exploitative and reinforcing of harmful stereotypes that goes on in mainstream porn. Sure. And also I think that it can still be educational for some people and some people can have a healthy relationship to it on the consumer end. I think on the producer end, there are a lot of issues with exploitation of performers and all that. But um, so I think we can dig deeper into there. But actually, I'm just so excited about feminist porn and really want to give a brief history of it. Would this be okay? <laughs> sure. So, so some this part of my core uh, political philosophy is when things are fucked up, you can decide to to fight the system and tear it down, and that's cool sometimes, or maybe that works sometimes. But I am a firm believer in transcending opposition whenever possible, not uh-huh. being like us versus them. So what. I'm so excited about the feminist porn movement is that it says, okay, there's so much that's fucked up about mainstream porn, but instead of just railing against it, um, we're going to create the world that we want to see in a sense. We're going to make porn that we're excited about and uh, let that be resonant and hope that that can can build. And so, I mean, obviously it's outside of the mainstream and there is still a lot of problems with mainstream porn, but um, as far as, uh, feel free to jump in if either of you no specifics that I don't, but would I, I think Annie Sprinkle was one of the first in the seventies. She made this film called deep inside Annie Sprinkle. And, um, and she, it was the first time that I'm aware of that. It was like porn from like where the, where the, the female had agency and, and was, was essentially having sex out of celebration Um, Then there's Candida Royale in the 80s, who I know less about, but then um, who I know most about is Tristan Tarmino, same woman who wrote Opening Up. Um, She's uh, she's a feminist porn maker, and she is really on the front lines about talking about this stuff. And she lets all of the performers choose exactly what they want to do in their scenes and choose who they will and will not be with. So she captures... Uh, exactly and only what they're honestly excited about. A year ago, she always had safer sex supplies on hand, but a year ago she began to mandate condom use in every scene and has taken a lot of flack for that. But um, uh, she has done that. And also, so all of this stuff, um, what they're really getting at the core of is changing, uh, is creating film in order to uh display sex and all of its fullness and rawness and humanity and for the purpose of turning people on and getting people off um but from this much more democratic perspective giving agency to the performers thinking about a a, a cisgendered female as potential viewer um in that it's shaking up gender norms it's show, uh, a lot of her films have um, have queer situations. Some of them have have heterosexual sex, but um, even her camera angles are uh, are hugely much more democratic than that in mainstream porn. And so, go on. I feel like um, 
Well, instead of, I mean, I think of it in terms of like, what is, what is the perspective that we're aiming at? Mm -hmm. And I feel like, so I haven't watched a ton of mainstream porn. I try to avoid it pretty much, but, um, but that which I have seen, it's very much about, I mean, we say male gazy or like, it's very much about boob shot, cum shot, all, all that. And so I feel like what I mean by a more democratic, uh, democratic uh, choice of frame is it tries to show um, sexual perspectives equally or like on an equal plane. Okay. Um, and I guess it's hard for me to be more specific about that. But like so that's... an Emmanuel Lubezki shot, the camera will just sort of drift off into the, into the birds <laughs> in the distance as they fly by and then back down. <laughs> Maybe, okay. yes. But, um, so Huge I just think... tracking shots. It's very democratic. I'm just, I'm so excited to to talk more about feminist porn because I think a lot of people may may not be aware of it, and so when we write off porn, I would like just to ask: Well, is are there other ways that porn could be? Because people do watch porn, people are going to sure. watch porn. Porn can be a great educational tool, sure. even the shitty stuff. Um, and I'm I've been going on and on and on and on. And please, will someone else jump in? <laughs> well, one thing that you were that's saying, my initial that's my preamble. One thing you were saying that I really really liked, Stephanie, was. Basically, the fact that the answer to bad art isn't no art, it's making better art. Mm-hmm. And Cheers. this comes to this comes up whether it's, you know, something that you just find harmful or whether it's just something that you personally don't like. But I do want to distinguish, and this is something that the longtime sex logger, furry girl, has done in a number of her posts, between the porn that's marketed as feminist porn and porn that is filmed in ways where the labor practices are considered feminist, but they're not necessarily marketing it as anything other than mainstream. And the oh, work of so Jessica important. Drake comes to mind there. Mm. As well as Stormy Daniels Drake and, another, and, and a number of other female mm. directors. Mm-hmm. I admit to being completely under-researched in this area. I got to meet Jessica Drake this weekend. What does Jessica Isn't Drake awesome? do? She, she is does, so awesome. She does both mainstream porn. She's a vivid contrast star. She also does a number of sex educational videos that have been extremely well received and does the lecture circuit. So there is uh, clearly an abundance of free porn on the internet, which can be great because it's fun to watch people naked, but also is problematic because it means that the methods by which people who create and perform porn are, are um are now no longer income bearing, which can be a problematic for making good high quality porn with people who want to be doing it. Right. Uh. Okay. So um, if one is interested in seeking out porn on the internet and has an unlimited income, where should people look? And if one is interested in seeking out porn on the internet and doesn't have much money, where should they look? First off for the not much money angle, there are a lot of people, it can be helpful to consider porn part of your entertainment budget. And just to set your entertainment budget, this is, this is what I did when I was a college student. I had my porn budget and I got really excited at the idea of having a porn budget because it made me feel not only like a real adult, but like a really pervy one. I mean, that's just kind of fun having a line item for that in Excel. But a lot of porn sites do have, you know, a few day trials for five bucks or six bucks or what have you so that you can pop in and see if the archives are something that you're interested in. See if you want to continue exploring that particular genre or that particular site for more than just a quick, you know, romp late one night. There are also the various clip sites that allow you to pay to download. And a lot of independent producers are jumping on the clips bandwagon because it's a way that works really well for people that aren't interested in recurring billing. It's also a way that a lot of the independent studios are getting better margins than they would necessarily from some of the other options. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I want to actually flip things for a minute as I, um, I'm just thinking about all that I do honestly find gross about mainstream porn. And I want to, talk about um when or, or if ever music. yeah that's always a problem but <laughs> but i don't know if 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 and when 
porn on the consumption end is a problem. I, I think about my father, who it's no secret is an evangelical minister, and he has a counseling practice counseling men away from porn addiction, which he defines as any watching of porn at all. Um, and I have a problem with that because I think that grown-ups, consenting adults should do what they want. Um, but um, I also think that, I mean, is is there, I, I'm, grapp- I'm sitting in this question, is there a, such a thing as porn addiction? I, I think I reach for maybe that there are times when porn could be a stand-in for really talking about or sitting with questions in that if you're in a relationship or really investing in that relationship, I think often watching porn can just augment that. But I like, I don't know. I'm I'm honestly sitting in, in this question. Your question is, is there such a thing as porn addiction slash when does viewing a porn become problematic? Yeah. Viewing a porn. porn? (laughs) Great. Firstly, they have finally done the research (laughs) to show that no porn addiction does in fact not exist. What does exist, however, is compulsive watching of pornography, compulsive masturbation, and so on. And anything, any repetitive action can become a compulsion. You can have a compulsion Mm -hmm. around hand washing. You can have a compulsion around checking your door at night. You can have a compulsion around masturbating before you fall asleep. You can have a compulsion for watching porn. And so when you try to treat porn addiction as an addiction rather than as a compulsive behavior, you're not looking at the underlying cause, which means that if you remove porn the person is just going to find another compulsive behavior to replace it. Mm. And so if someone treating has it as an addiction is shaming. Mm-hmm. If they have that type of personality, right, if, they, if they have that type of behavior pattern, then that's something that they need to be aware of and treat as something that is separate from porn because if they try to separate the porn from it, they're not going to actually solve the problem. They're just going to mask it in perhaps a way that's more socially acceptable. And another thing that comes up is a lot of times people confuse use of porn coinciding with withdrawal from a relationship or reduced interest in sex within that relationship. I hear that a lot. Porn addiction, but those are two different things. People have solo sex drives and sometimes you don't want to have sex with your partner, but you are still a sexual person. And when people pull away sexually from their partners in a relationship, the other partner oftentimes perceives that as both a problem and a threat. A lot of times partners, especially partners who've been socialized as female who have specific ideas around how sexuality behaves in a relationship, feel that if their partner has a solo sex drive but doesn't want to have sex with them, then something is wrong or that their partner shouldn't have a sex a relationship to their sexuality separate from their relationship because that then becomes a threat to the relationship. Mm. A lot of the idea that we have around porn addiction actually comes from our fears around sex outside of an intimate relationship, even if Mm. that's only sex within oneself. Huh. Okay. So uh, let's let's say you've tracked down using your few day trials, your five dollar, six dollar, your clip sites. You found something that you totally dig, and you're like, I want to watch everybody on this site do this forever. Is there a way to check to see if it's being filmed responsibly in feminist ways to make sure the performers aren't being exploited? How do you know once you've tracked down what you want to watch that you can watch it and not feel bad about your money going to support um, practices that you actually don't want to support? Good question. And I actually want to distinguish here between some of the things that Stephanie was talking about in terms of problematic porn or porn that is quote-unquote bad and bad labor practices because oftentimes when we encounter Mm. porn that is filmed for kinks that we don't share, it can be, it can can squick you. It can, you know, give you that recoil response. And it's, it's okay to have porn that's out there that you don't like and it's okay to have porn that's out there that you don't like that is in fact the dominant porn narrative it just mm-hmm. means that you don't like those movies and mm-hmm. that's why we have fortunately now alternatives coming up left and right and supporting those alternatives is voting with your dollars the same mm-hmm. way that it is with any other type of film 
As far as the labor practices, just, researching the companies, listening to what the performers say, talking to the performers on Twitter, following them. They talk about, you know, who pays them, who doesn't pay them, who has bad labor practices, who's creepy on set. Over time, you sort of learn the reputations of companies. If a lot of performers that you respect and enjoy are working for the same company, there's usually a reason for that, either because they're doing it as a favor for a friend or because they support those practices. Mm-hmm. Ruby. Mm. Watch good porn. Watch good porn. <laughs> and be considered. And be considered about your choices around porn. Yes. Um, next question. Sure. Great. It's a doozy. You ready? <laughs> what is it? It's a regular doozy. What is it? It's Wait. Great. What is it? It is. I am a straight male in my mid twenties, and my girlfriend of two years is way kinkier than I am. She's very into BDSM as a top and as a bottom. And she has expressed that me not experimenting with her in that way would be a deal breaker for us. I love her a lot. I want to be GGG, but power play is really hard for me. I love plain old vanilla lovemaking. And a feeling of that kind of intimacy is most important to me in my sex life. Also, I fear hurting her. I know this may make us incompatible, but I don't want to give up yet. So I think I have three questions, actually. One... How do I up my skills and comfort level with BDSM? Two, can power play feel intimate? And three, how can vanilla sex and BDSM interact with each other within the context of one relationship? Any thoughts would be greatly appreciated. And I have that some, is a doozy. That's a doozy. And I have some thoughts on this, but Sabrina, I'm specifically excited to bring this to the table when you're on board. I'm wondering Thank if you. you feel comfortable diving in. Yes, this is something that I've run into a lot with all sorts of different relationship dynamics and power dynamics, but it's often the same question. When partner has a strong interest in BDSM and it's something that's on their sexual must-have list, and the other partner might be new to it, might be curious, might not feel comfortable with it, but isn't necessarily ready to call it a no yet. In this case, what I see oftentimes, especially with this listener's particular question, is a fear that engaging from that place of power means shutting down the intimacy and shutting down the love and the closeness. That is Mm -hmm. absolutely, it's an option. And if his partner is specifically turned on by that sort of flat affect sociopath top thing, then maybe that's something that they can role play with. But in general, you can have profoundly connective experiences in a BDSM setting. In fact, the type of intense play that occurs in those settings promotes a feeling of intimacy mm. because you are fe- feeling an emotional crest and then fall yeah, that's, with two people together sharing the same experience. That's been my experience and observation too, that, Vanilla sex can run the range of from super fucking intimate to not really intimate at all. And as can any kind of power play, but also I think vanilla sex can be more easily had with any, without much self-awareness or discussion around it or getting in touch with what you want or decision and commitment to explore and dig deep together. And so I think when you're engaging in any kind of consensual power exchange, the, the negotiation and conversation around that and the kind of like, we are together going to, um, going to step into this, maybe even like a liminal space or, and, and really push our boundaries together. I think that that can I could almost say that it has the potential for a more consistent or different or maybe even more or differently powerful kind of intimacy. Definitely more intense intimacy in some cases. I think that I like Mm. the point that you made about the fact that most people aren't in the habit of negotiating explicitly around their vanilla sex. And so it can be easier to get into a habit of having sex where one or both partners is checked out. But I do want to point out that it is possible to have that sort of thing occur in a BDSM context too, especially if you get into the habit of not negotiating or not advocating for your needs in the moment if the mood changes. 
I think we're back to you should talk to each other about things, which That's, conveniently is in our mission statement. Yeah, it's all, it's conveniently this sort of my feeling about about when it comes down to any question is you should talk to. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. so let's say um, it said he was a straight guy with a female partner, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so let's say um, he gives it a go. He does the reading. He goes with her to play parties to observe, and then maybe to try, and then he gives it a shot, and he just honestly doesn't like it. At what point has he? How, what, how will he know when he has given it enough of a shot to know this isn't my thing? And how will he know when it's just you got to try? You got to keep trying because you'll get there. When? When can he be sure? It's not going to work. Because he said it, she, he said that his partner has said that it's a deal breaker. Yeah. So when does he say, you know what, I love you, but this isn't going to work because I'm not willing to do this. How much work does he put in? If it's something that is actively a turn off for him, if he tries it and it's something that he consistently recoils from, if it's something that is a squick for him, I think that it would be emotionally safest for them both to just go ahead and call that what it is. However, and something in the wording of his question made me wonder about this, if it's a case of feeling uncomfortable with the idea of being in control, of dishing out pain, of stepping into a position of sexual aggression or sexual power, but that's not something that's a turnoff for him, then I would say the best thing to do is to find a sex coach or a sex educator who is experienced in kink and look at ways that he can step into his power sexually that don't feel artificial, that feel authentic to him and where he can ensure step-by-step that he is still a good person because that's something that a lot of dominance and a lot of sadists face that we don't always talk about, that reassurance that you are still a good person for doing this to your partner, that yes, they want it, they welcome you and especially men who are so often shamed around sexuality and strength. Hmm, yeah, I hear what you're saying, Sabrina, and I I feel like I do hear that a lot. Um, I kind of, I feel like we've laid a, a good foundation for this conversation. Mm-hmm. I want to return back to the three questions at which this uh, person wrote in about. Sure. Um, yes. The first being, um, how does he up his skills and confidence around this. Um, I mean, I love the new topping book and the new bottoming book by Dossie Easton and Janet Hardy. I think those are great resources. Yeah. If he wanted to reach out to a sex coach uh, um, in his area, how would he find one? One of the easiest ways is just to put a call out there on Twitter to somebody who is a nationally known sex coach and ask them, do you know of anybody who is in my area or who works with people in my area? He's actually, he's welcome to drop me an email at Sabrina at SabrinaMorgan.com. And if I don't know of somebody who works with people in his area, I probably know somebody who does. Sweet. Um, and I, I think it's an awesome suggestion to work, reach out to a coach and also it may be that his girlfriend is more experienced in, experienced in this than he is. Mm-hmm. And then just to check in about her comfort level of, of showing him the ropes. Stop it. <laughs> the both of you. <laughs> um, okay. Um, I think we've already addressed, can there be intimacy? Yeah. Um, most definitely. Most yes. definitely. Yes. Um, I guess let's speak to uh, the last question that, that he had, which was, how do power play or how do and can power play and vanilla sex uh, interact within the context of one relationship? Very well. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have thoughts on that, Dan? Well, yeah. yeah. I I mean, um, um, there are, there are seasons and there are seasons and there are times and there are times and there's sex and there's sex and um, a sex life, a sexual connection. Um, there is no rule writ from on high that it needs to be one thing all the time, forever and ever, amen. Um, in the same way that um, you should always talk to each other about things, this is something you talk about. And if you're feeling particularly like tying people up and showing them the ropes <laughs> that day, that you should feel free to say so. And um, maybe there are seasons where you're feeling like um, a, a, a double scoop of French vanilla is exactly what you need that day. And I think that... um. 
you know, they're, they're, they're it's possible to do both. Um, um, as long as, as long as it's all talked about beforehand, mm-hmm. you'll, I think that you'll find a way. And there are Absolutely. people who are in full-time BDSM relationships where um, even that power dynamic extends outside of the bedroom or that's, uh, that's uh, exclusively what happens in the bedroom in a certain connection. Yes, but that has been pre-negotiated for sure. To- all yeah. pre-negotiated, con- consensual power exchange. Yes. But I do think that's, uh, that's p- perhaps less common than uh, power, consensual power exchange just being... Oh one delicious thing on this awesome menu of which vanilla sex is also a super delicious thing. And depending on what this person's girlfriend is up for, it might be that they could find. You can order the Neapolitan. Neapolitan. (laughs) I had a Neapolitan shake from In-N-Out Burger the other day. How did that go for you? Well, you know, I had the vanilla for a while and that was really good. (laughs) Then I had a little sip of the strawberry, and that was exactly what I needed at that time. <laughs> um, other thoughts for this person before we move on to cookies? Hey, good luck. And like we've said before, if um, uh, sexual connection and sexuality and physicality are an important part of relationships, um, uh, of sexual relationships, right? Mm-hmm. So if this ends up, the fact that you guys aren't aligned, it doesn't mean that the rest of your relationship is worthless or doesn't exist or it, that you're a lesser being yeah, that like vanilla that, sex is awesome it doesn't mean your connection's not real it doesn't mean your friendship's not great sometimes people just aren't sexually compatible and that can really suck but again i promise it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with your relationship mm-hmm. it's just not something or with you, you. yeah or with you it's just not something you connect on and that can be hard but it is okay and doesn't speak say anything bad about you mm-hmm Absolutely. I want to really support the fact that both he and his girlfriend seem to focus on sexual compatibility as an important part of relationships because so mm-hmm. often people don't and then it becomes a problem later on. Being yes. upfront mm-hmm. about it from the start, getting those needs met, treating those needs as valuable is yeah. something right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yes. <laughs> yes. We concur. <laughs> <laughs> On to quickies. All right. This is where we uh, where we will each quickly endorse or rant about something, mm-hmm. just something brief that's on our mind that uh, we want to sort of get out there. Who wants to go first? Why I will go first, Dave. Please yeah. go first. Um, so uh, earlier in this conversation, we brought up um, the fact that that some people uh, can't believe that anybody would be a sex worker. Therefore all sex workers must be somehow forced into it. Right. And, um, the other day I got in a fight that I quickly ended. So as not to torpedo our friendship with somebody who thinks that the moon landing wasn't real. And these two things are connected. So I want to (laughs) say, do not commit the logical fallacy of disbelief because of incredulity, just because you cannot imagine something being so does not mean that it is not so. You have to do you have to do some research. For instance, there are huge loads of verifiable evidence that the moon landing occurred. Okay, and there are actual sex workers you can talk to who say that they're not being forced into it. So if you hear something and it sounds unbelievable, maybe it is. But that is not enough to dismiss it. Make sure to do some research beforehand before you're willing to say that's not true because I find it hard to believe. Here ends the gospel. Indeed. Amen. <laughs> well, but now because of, I'm inspired by what you said, now I have three quickies. I'm going to be super greedy and I'm just going to do what? Them. I'm going to do them. I'm doing quickly. Um, with relationship to like, there are actual sex workers who you can talk to. Um, I'm really inspired by the work of Melissa Jira Grant, who's also at this conference that Sabrina and I were at last weekend. Um, and she uh, is a journalist and former sex worker and talks about what a radical thing it is for when she writes about sex work to make sure that in every piece she actually includes the voice of someone who is engaging in sex work and what a relatively rare occurrence that is. So as you're reading things about sex work or human trafficking to look for that, have have they spoken to anybody who is in the trade? Um, But then the things that I were going to say, which is two other related quickies um, are uh, throwback to our porn discussion. I got to go to Dan Savage's amateur porn festival hump while I was in Chicago and something that you said earlier, Sabrina, was um, sometimes, you know, you're separating out 
there's porn that I may not be into, but it's still okay if it's made with good trade practices and everything. Um, but what this festival is so amazing for is um, it's uh, short, it's, it's short films, like five minutes and several of them stacked next to each other that represent such a wide range of gender expression, sexual orientation, what people are into. And, um, what's so cool is that they're all stacked together. And then we all sit in the theater and watch each other's porn together. And it's all, a lot of it is really fun and celebratory and it's, um, Two of my favorite examples, there was one that was, um, it was, it was meant to have kind of a silly tone and it was, um, this like hyper masculine two dudes hooking up while fixing a car and like slathering themselves in oil. And it was meant to be like a little campy and over the top. And there's, it's just like, so masculine, masculine, masculine. And then once their pants come off, we realize that they both have vulvas. And, um, it was just such a, such a, uh, um, such a lovely way to contextualize gender complexity. And then another one that I loved, I just found this, it was a lot subtler and and really beautiful. This, uh, it was jump cuts between the film is called crutch and jump cuts between this conventionally gorgeous woman masturbating in bed. And that same woman who is evidently, uh, who evidently has, uh, some disability, um, navigating painstakingly navigating her way around New York city on with her crutch. And so we see this body that society would often demean or, or society at large would have trouble sometimes finding the sexiness in this body jump cut with this body being very gorgeous and, and sexual in an overt way that society recognizes. And then it ends with um, her masturbating with her crutch, thereby like eroticizing this object that, that isn't often eroticized. And I found that really beautiful. And that just a quick tag to that. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I think it's really, really important to talk more about, um, about sex and disability. And I, uh, there's a blog that I love called the auto straddle. And there's a great post called know me where it hurts sex kink and cerebral palsy. And I think that everyone should read it and that it's gorgeous and a really important post. And thank you for being with me. Those are my three quickies. Okay. All in a bundle. <laughs> Sabrina. It's funny because I have so many things that I want to talk about, but I'm I'm only going to pick one. You have more restraint than I do, my friend. Congratulations. (laughs) But the one thing that's really on my mind right now is just how amazing it is when people will come to these different conclusions about do the, the real soul searching work about themselves and their gender and their sexuality and then face the hard work of making change happen. I'm really focused on the way that people will put up and put up and put up and then reach that point where change becomes inevitable and how that applies to sexuality and relationships and reclaiming relationships to bodies. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes back to what you were saying about some of the points that that was displayed in the festival and also a lot of the sessions that came out of catalyst this year. Mm-hmm. I think that there was a big emphasis on getting to that point where things have to change and then moving forward and making it happen. And I like the fact that as a culture, we're saying that in not only our political lives, but in our personal lives that we can do this with sex. We can do this with relationships. We can do this with gender. Mm-hmm. I've gone. Rock on, Sabrina Morgan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun. Absolutely. So we talked about sex and we were smart. And as far as I can tell, we're people. I think that means that the podcast is aptly named. Doug loves movies? Thank you so much for listening, and thanks again to the amazing Sabrina Morgan. And on our next episode, I'm so excited that we have Mo Beasley. Mo has more than 20 years' experience in sexuality, race, manhood, and arts advocacy work. 
And he's produced this erotic poetry series called Urban Erotica. And I recently encountered Mo at Catalyst Con and um, got to attend his amazing panel on confronting homophobia in communities of color and got to see actually a version of Urban Erotica, which is people from all different backgrounds doing um, uh, slam poetry and, and other kinds of theatrical renditions of the erotic. And uh, he is super rad, and I'm really excited to bring him on board. Great. Yeah, and if you all out there in podcast world would like to uh, help us make sure that we can keep doing these and keeping them free, please remember to go to patreon.com slash slash. Yeah, put a slash in there. Go to patreon.com, <laughs> enter a slash, and then type sex for smart people. Um, if you have a buck or two to throw us per episode, if you like what we're doing, we'd super duper appreciate it. Indeed. It'll help us be smart, help us be sexy, and help us be people. Indeed. All of those things. And thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Stay smart and sexy. Bye. What I think is the sexiest this week is textures. Just really soft textures, interesting ones. Anything that feels good against the skin. Mm. I'm going to go with my Hitachi Magic Wand is the sexiest. Buzz Aldrin is the sexiest. (laughs) 